You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Brad Beckin is one of a relatively small group of dedicated amateur golfers who share a common purpose, which is to safeguard the life's work of a man from Scotland named Donald Ross, a man whom many consider to be the most important influence on the game of golf in America. Serious students of the game and students of golf course architecture in particular are well aware of the contributions of Donald Ross, but I think it's fair to say that the average golfer has scant knowledge or appreciation of who Donald Ross was or his impact on the game. Hopefully, Brad Beckin's interview with Golf Yeah will increase by some measure the golfing public's understanding of who the man was and more specifically, why there is an organization called the Donald Ross Society for which Brad Beckin currently serves as president. After a long and distinguished career as an investment banker, working for some of the most respected firms on Wall Street, Brad served as CFO and then president of a Los Angeles-based entertainment company until his retirement in 2005. I'll let Brad fill in all the details regarding his life story and regarding the work of the Donald Ross Society, but I will disclose that his progress through the ranks of the society has been impressive. Brad joined the organization in 2012, was elected to the board in 2016, and assumed the role of president in 2018, which suggests to me that Brad has a true calling for the Donald Ross Society that's been recognized by people who share his passion. So Brad, thanks for joining me today, and welcome to Golf Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Listen, my first question, I know it wasn't, isn't on the list of questions I sent you, but is it true that you've played 385 Donald Ross courses? Uh, it's not quite that high. The actual number is about 367. It's every course that uh, Ross course that still exists, although some of those that I've played have since closed. Wow. And how long a period of time did that take place over? It took me about eight years to, oh, get, okay. to get it all. Was that a chore for you, or was that a labor of love? No, it was an absolute pleasure. It started almost by accident. I've spent most of my career in Los Angeles, most of, and when I moved to North Carolina, shortly after we had moved here, a good friend of mine from Los Angeles Country Club was coming to visit. He and I used to play golf there together a lot. And we played a local course I joined, and then the pros suggested I try another nearby course in Durham, North Carolina called Hope Valley, which is a Ross course. And we went over there the next day and played it. Absolutely loved it. And the pros said, well, if you like that, there's a lot more in North Carolina for you to try. And that's how it got started. I just started playing more and more and going further afield. Now, when you called the courses to play outside of North Carolina or anywhere else, introduce yourself as representing the society or uh, were you just an independent golfer at that point. And what I'm really wondering, Brad, is did you get on for free or did you have to pay greens fees to play all those courses? I mostly played every once in a while. Uh, someone, of course, would say no charge. But when I started, it was in 2010, I was not yet a member of the Donald Ross Society. And ironically, it was the same individual 
who had joined me at Hope Valley the first time, we were hitting balls together at Los Angeles Country Club a couple of years later, and he said, well, you know, there's a Donald Ross Society. I said, actually, I didn't. And so I joined it then. Okay. Well, I'm getting off script here, but I was hoping that you could start for the uninitiated, and I don't consider myself to be initiated. If you could provide a, a brief overview of Donald Ross, the man, his life, his work, and then the impact that he's had on the game. Sure. He was born in Scotland. He's from Dornoch, and he was born in 1872, and rose to become the head pro, greenskeeper, variety of other position at Dornock, Royal Dornock Golf Club. And while he was there, a professor from Harvard happened to be there playing golf, talked him into coming to the United States because the fellow was a member of a course near Boston called Oakley. And they were in need of redesigning the existing nine holes that they had and were hoping to add nine more to that, which Ross ended up doing. And that's how he ended up coming to the United States. This was 1899. That would have been significant enough, but shortly thereafter, he met James Tufts, who was a wealthy businessman from Boston who had acquired about 5,000 acres of land, I think, in Pinehurst, North Carolina, and started a resort there a few years before. So besides working at Oakley as head pro, et cetera, at Oakley, he was spending his winners beginning in, 18, in 1900 at Pinehurst and started to redesign what little golf course they had there at the time and then added more over time. Now, did he have formal training as an architect or in design at all? He had tutored at the time. If you were a head pro, you sort of came up through the ranks because you were required to do a number of things. First of all, you had to be able to make golf clubs because... Back then, there was no standard manufacturing. They're all individually made. Ross had actually started out as a carpenter's apprentice. And then he had ended up acquiring skills like greenskeeping, golf course maintenance, and so forth. He interned under old Tom Morris. He also interned at Carnoustie. And so by his mid-20s, he was considered a seasoned uh, golf I don't want to use the term executive because that would sound too grandiose, but he knew what he was doing. He was also quite a player, from what I understand. He was quite a player, and when he came to the United States, he's played in the United States, the U.S. Open, I think, something like four or five times, finished in the top ten a couple of times, won the North-South Amateur Tournament, which is a big event. So, yes, he was an accomplished golfer as well. Now, the Tufts family, is that the same family that's related to Tufts University, or is that a, a different? I don't know. I suspect it might be the same, but I don't know. He had, James Tufts had made a fortune. He had a device for dispensing soda, and it was very popular in drugstores at the time. That's where he made his money and led him to acquire Pinehurst. I think he originally envisioned it as sort of a health resort, and it had been open for a year or two when he noticed guests at the resort were playing golf or banging balls around on a vacant lot near the resort. And he inquired what were they doing, and that led them hiring someone to develop the first golf course there, which was Nine Holes. And I think that was 1897, about. Now, was that Ross who designed that first course for him? No. I forget the gentleman's name. He was a public health official in New York City. And the reason he was asked to design the course was 
he had visited Scotland and was deemed to have an understanding of the game. I don't believe he actually played, though. <laughs> okay. So Ross comes over here. Apparently, he was not a wealthy man when he got here. He had he's fairly, you know, of meager means, I understand. And he appeared to be in the right place at the right time. How did his reputation grow? And, you know, did he end up being wealthy as a result of all the work that he did? Well, he, you're right. He came from a family of modest means. I think his father was a stonemason. Being the head pro, greenskeeper, etc., doorknock, which was a reasonably well-paying position at the time, but he was by no means wealthy. However, by the time he died in 1948, he was quite a wealthy man. He worked for a long time, was very highly paid, so he was certainly wealthy by standards of the country at the time. To me, one of the most important things about his connection with Pinehurst is that golf, when Ross came to the United States in 1899, golf was already starting to become quite popular in the United States. But at the time, there really weren't very many golf courses anywhere. And the ones that were here were not particularly good. I mean, you read stories of some clubs that got started because an individual happened to have some land and they put a tee in one spot and a hole in another and bang out balls. And then as people started to visit Pinehurst, remember at the time, this was mostly wealthier people from all over the country visiting there and all of a sudden they see these courses and it's quite a bit different than they're used to seeing wherever they happen to be playing at home and it's also evident that the fellow who's designing these courses donald ross knows what he's doing and that led to people hiring him well how about building a course for us in cleveland or chicago or wherever and that's really how he got started and then of course as that happened the demand for his services mushroomed over time because people who hadn't necessarily gone to Pinehurst play his courses. And again, it was very evident that he knew what he was doing. Now, were his counterparts people like Tillinghast and McKenzie? I mean, was he competing against those other architects? Competing, yes. I think they were, as a rule, though, fairly collegial. They would often look at each other's work. That's at least my understanding, comment on each other's work. There was certainly an element of competition, I know, in Ross's case, he actually only competed for two design projects. One was Seminole, which he got, Seminole Golf Club in Florida. And the other was Augusta National. And Bobby Jones ended up hiring McKenzie instead. As you mentioned, Bobby Jones assigned uh, Alistair McKenzie to do Augusta National. But my understanding is that Alistair McKenzie led a very different life from from Donald Ross and that uh, he was not as successful a business person. He died broke from what I understand. I believe that's correct. Yeah. So I guess Donald Ross it was as good at business as he was uh, at design. Yeah, he was a thrifty individual. I also think, I think I've read where Tillinghast uh, was not well off financially when he died either. And that may have been for different reasons. From my understanding of Tillinghast is he was quite a playboy. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I don't know. So having played so many of the courses, Brad, you know, what are the, some of the signature characteristics of a classic Ross design? Yeah, there are a number of features that I think really stand out. And before talking about them, I think it's important to remember that at the time he was designing golf courses, which was really beginning right about 1899, 1900, during the first 30 years or so of his design work, there was not a bulldozer. 
So when he designed a course, he was very conscious of trying, trying to use the land that he was given to design a course for and incorporate that into the design without moving lots of dirt around, which has certainly been the case in more recent times. He was a very thrifty individual. He didn't believe in wasting land. It's typical for a Ross course to have the next tee very close to a short walk away from the green that you've just finished playing. There's, I remember reading once, I can't remember the name of the book, but someone said in there, if you see a dog leg on a golf course, chances are Donald Ross designed it. If you see two dog legs on a golf course, there's no doubt. And indeed, if you look at his drawings, and I've studied lots of them, it's the kind of dog legs he's talking about are not necessarily always a severe one, like a 90 degree turn, but, but there'd be a certain amount of shift in the direction of the course. And one of the things Ross liked to do very often was to have some kind of hazard in the elbow of the dog leg. And this presented the player with a choice. The preferred way to play the shot would be to hit the ball in a line that would go over the hazard. And that would leave you with the best approach shot to the green and the best chance of making par better. If, however, you are less confident of your game, your skill level, he would provide room away from the hazard and effectively allow you to play away from it. Another feature that's very common on raw screens, and again, you see this time and time again if you look at his drawings, is he would elevate almost every one of his greens to some degree. And I think a lot of it had to do with drainage, because you want to make sure the green would drain properly. But it also gave him an opportunity to do things on the green to make the play more interesting and challenging for the player from day to day. In fact, I think to me, if you say, what is the most, the one single thing that you would say about Ross that stands out the most, it would be his green and bunker complexes. Because he has so much movement on the greens, you have undulations and mounds that would work themselves into the green. He would flash up or build up the bunker faces and then have undulations coming off the backs of the bunkers working their way into the green. You have plateaus and hollows, all kinds of things that would end up making the surface itself challenging and play very differently day to day depending upon where the pin was. Yeah. One of the things that's fascinated me about what I've read about Ross is that he never got to see many of the completed courses that he designed. Is that true? Yeah, it's certainly true. He did not see a lot of them. The best estimate I've seen is that he did not see at all approximately a third of his designs. He would be given a topographical map, and he would design the course off the topographical map. And much of his work he did in a cottage in North Carolina versus on site. Is that? Yes, or in Boston or in Little Compton, Rhode Island. Okay. Now, did he use, was photography invented by that time? Did he have any images that he could work from, or is it all in his head? Oh, absolutely. No, no. There are photographs available. So he would photograph the actual landscape as source material? Oh, I don't know if he would personally do it. I'm just saying photography was available back then. I don't know if he was personally photographed. He would certainly, if he was at the site, he would walk the site, and that would become integral to his design work. Okay. And what was his total number of courses that he designed? The society, the Donald Ross Society, tries to keep a list of his work that is as accurate as we can make it. 
it's been a little bit challenging because with the digitization of so much old media, we're finding courses that Ross clearly worked on that no one knew before. He had never been on a list before. And likewise, we're finding certain courses that have been on the Roscoe Society list that have turned out to be the work of other people. But the most current number right now is 428 that he designed. And that includes the ones he designed that were built, maybe at some point were closed down or destroyed. That was the code. So if you take the total number of courses and then you know divide it by the number of his working years, how many projects did he have going at all times in any particular year? Well, I think... It wasn't a constant. He's, he developed somewhat slowly. His peak period was the 1920s. Okay. And he was doing somewhere between 20 and 30 courses. 20, I think he was doing about 20 courses a year at that time or more. So he had to manage that number of construction crews in different parts of the country at all times? Is that? Yes. I mean, he wasn't necessarily building them all, but he had crews that went out and built his courses. And I think at one point he had something like 3,000 people working for him. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. So really, it was a construction company as much as a design firm. Uh, he was doing everything. He'd get involved in hiring the head pro and the general manager of the course, establishing standards for the club and so forth. Okay. Do you have any idea of you know, what his fees were for those different services? Are there any records of that? I have seen some records of what he was being paid. I'll give you an example, one that's, a little, I think, kind of humorous. By the early 20s, he was quite famous as a golf course architect. And there was a course in San Mateo, California, near San Francisco. At the time, it was called Bearsford Country Club. And they had a nine-hole course that had been laid out by Tom Benderow. The club acquired some adjacent land. They wanted to expand the course to an 18-hole course. So they write Ross and say, we'd like you to come out and, you know, redesign our nine-hole course and add nine more holes. Ross writes back, and the club, by the way, has this correspondence, writes back, says, you know, I'm very flattered by your offer, but, you know, I'm extremely busy right now. And, of course, he's living on the East Coast, and the only way to get the West Coast was by train back then. So he says, I'm just too busy. I can't do it. So he writes in that letter. A few weeks later, they write back again. They say, look, you know, no, we're really interested in hiring you, you know, we're you think you're the right guy, blah, blah, blah. He writes back and says, look, I told you, I'm too busy. They write a third letter, we'll pay you $4,000. And he writes back, I'll see you in a month. <laughs> that was a lot of money back then. That was a lot of money. Yeah. How many of courses that are currently operating, Ross courses, are private versus public? And how many of those are nine-hole courses? Is there a tally on that? Yeah, I've got... There's a couple of ways you had asked raise that question before. Let me answer the public versus private. If you add up the public courses, the municipal courses, and the resort courses, it comes to 73. If you add up the nine-hole courses, it's about 75. Now, a lot of those are clubs where perhaps someone else came in and added the other nine holes. They're not all just nine-hole courses today. Yeah, okay. Now, several of, you know, Ross's most iconic courses have hosted major tournaments, but I'm wondering, the relatively, is the relatively short length of the courses, does that preclude the PGA or, or USGA from using them on uh, major tournaments? No, they're not. And Ross courses continue to be used for significant courses. In some cases, they've been lengthened. 
By the way, I gave you the wrong number. The number of public courses is 103. Oh, okay. And just to clarify, that includes public, it includes municipal courses, it includes resort courses. Uh, we have some identified as semi-private. I did not include those. Okay. Is there a count on how many original Roth courses have been either built over or ruined through, you know, reckless redesign? Uh, yes, 73. 73? That have been either turned into apartment buildings, shopping centers, uh, someone has blown up the course and built an entirely different course, etc. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, Donald Ross Society and uh, what was the catalyst for creation and who started it and, you know, the whole backstory there. The society was founded in 1989. One of the gentlemen who was primarily responsible for doing that, his name is Mike Fay. He's a longtime captain of the society. He just retired last fall. But he was a longtime member of a club in West Hartford, Connecticut called Wampanoag. And in the late 80s, they had hired, a car direct, had an, hired an architect to come in and do some work on the course. And to say Mike Fay was upset is a significant understatement. <laughs> he was livid. And that led him to found the society with some others. And really, at the time, the focus of the Ross Society was to start trying to preserve these courses that were still out there. You know, a lot of them had been built, say, since the 20s, 60, 70 years before. Changes had been made over time. And Mike and the others and the society at the time was sort of leading the charge for trying to restore Ross courses back to their original design as best as you could. Mike Fay has written a, a book that apparently that I ordered it. It hasn't shown up yet. That showcases a number of Ross courses. Uh, so what was his, he, uh, other than being a member of Wampanoag, what's his story? He had grown up playing golf. He was an excellent golfer. And as, as a career, he was in insurance business. But he played, he played a lot of golf. was very accomplished. Okay. He's still a member at, uh, at Wampanoag? Yeah. yeah. And, and so he's still involved with the, the society also? Oh, yes. Yeah. Still a member, still involved. Okay. Now, Donald Ross, I found this interesting, also wrote an unpublished book that was discovered fairly recently. I don't recall when. Have you read that book? I have. I've actually read it two or three times, yes. Okay. Anything worth sharing? Any highlights? Or oh, it's very, I think it's a very interesting book for people who are, you know, fascinated by Ross and his work like I am. There's an awful lot in there on design details, philosophy about the game, things that he think are appropriate for golf courses, not just in design, maintenance and so forth. It's very worth reading. Well, I was wondering, you have a, quite a bit of information on the Society website about course maintenance. And I wondered if that came out of Ross's book. I don't know how much of that. That was done before I joined the Society. I don't know how much of that came out of the book or just a philosophy that's developed over time about the ways the right way to approach the courses and maintain them. Yeah. When did they find that book? I mean, under what circumstances? As I recall, it was sometime in the 1990s. Okay. They found his writings and published it. Now, Duff's family maintains a very extensive library or archive of materials. Is that correct? Yes. And that's open to the public? It is. Located where? It's in Pinehurst. It's in the Given Memorial Library. It's the back half of the library in Pinehurst. Now, did Watts have a family? Was he married? Did he have kids? He was married twice and had one child by his first wife. 
is the Ross family involved in the society or in his legacy at all? His descendants are very much involved in his legacy. You know, I've talked with them periodically, and you know, they're very actively involved in preserving his legacy. Now, I discovered through your website that this also was a two-hour movie made about Donald Ross. Do you have any background on that? Yes, I'll show you it right here. I don't know if you can see it. It's Donald Ross discovering the legend. I think it came out in about 2016 or 17. I think it's 2016. Was this a venture that was funded by the Donald Ross Society? Or was this uh, we contributed to the production along with some other people. Okay. We're not the sole source of funds for it. Okay, now you held up a, because listeners can't see, you held up a DVD, but isn't it also available through streaming, did I read? Probably is at this point, yes. The fellow who put it together, his name is Cobb Carlson. And yes, I think it is available to screen. <laughs> okay. I'm starting to feel like, uh, uh, what's the name of the movie? I did see the intro to that. They have a trailer for the movie, and he mentioned that he played at Brookline Country Club, which I belonged to several years ago. So talk to me about the society. You know, what's its mandate, and how does it go about its work? I mean, how does it make course owners embrace the mission? Well, as I said, this is a now a 30-year process. I think at the time, there was more effort involved trying to convince people that what they had was worth preserving or restoring. But the mission has not changed at all in the society, and that is to promote the recognition of Donald Ross, the excellence of his golf architecture, and the preservation and restoration of his courses. And the way the society did it is again, largely through the efforts of Mike Fay, he would go and consult with courses that were looking at restoration or looking at doing something to their course. And those services were provided for free by the society. Mike would do this, he would consult for nothing. And I think at this point, the number of courses he has consulted on is somewhere between 100 and 150. And a lot of that work has been done and he's widely recognized all over the country for the role he's played in that effort. Now, I will tell you also, it's not necessarily a big a challenge today because there are a number of architects that have really specialized in restoration and it's become a much more recognized approach and appreciated approach today than it was back in the late 80s. But how do you know when a course is being renovated? How do you keep track of that? Well, in a lot of cases, a member will contact us or contact like that or perhaps one of the architects that he's worked or we've worked with over the time, been involved with over the time, will say, look, I've been contacted by XYZ. They're looking at doing something to this course. Now, my understanding is that Ross actually founded in America the Golf Course Architects Society. Is that? He was a founder of it and, oh, its, founder. and its first president. Okay. So I would imagine that most of the modern day course architects are keenly aware of, because he's one of the godfathers of the discipline of Donald Ross. And I would, correct me if I'm wrong, that most or all of them are, you know, embrace the philosophy and are cooperative. Is that true? I think that's true of a lot of them. I think there's other people out there who, architects who would say, well, the game has changed and the course should be changed. What do you do in those cases? Do you have to essentially lobby with them to? We don't lobby with them. We lobby with the club, if we get involved, you know, we try to make our case and get involved with architects or suggest architects that, you know, we are, we believe are not only accomplished that, but sympathetic to restoration work and try to persuade the course 
I would love that that's the right way to go. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we don't. Do you perform like funerals when you see a, a bona fide Ross course being destroyed by you know, uh, a club? I have not participated in one of those funerals yet, although I, I am aware of a few that have been altered. Okay. You don't have any kind of certification program or a reward program that recognizes excellence in Ross design, do you? Is that part of the society's? No, we don't have any formal award in that regard. I mean, the way it works, if a course was designed by Ross and it still exists, it's on the Ross course list. Even if quite a few changes have been made to it over time by succeeding architects, uh, the exception being if the course is blown up and start over, then, then it comes off. But if a course is, say, only 40% Ross now and 60% something else, it would still be on the list. Yeah. Do clubs ever come to you or come to architects saying, we've had a Ross course, it's, it's been compromised over the years, we want it restored back to its original Ross state. Does that happen very often? It happens, yeah. Quite a, and I'd say since the society has found there's more of that that has happened. And where it gets a little bit trickier, is not every course has Ross's original whole drawings. And so it becomes a matter of interpretation of trying to, you know, what are the types of things Ross would do to put those features back into the course when you don't have drawings. I sent you that article. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet. I did read it, yeah. Yeah, Brunswick, we happen to have Ross's drawings. It was obvious a lot of changes have been made, which is not unusual over time, remembering seven or eight years since it originally built. But there the restoration architect, Davis Lovett and Associates, you know, followed his design. The result is absolutely terrific. I thought one of my favorite quotes in there is, I think it was Mark Love who said, this is the best green we've ever built. We didn't even design it. And my, from what I read, that's the course that Davis Love grew up on. He, yes. you know, playing that as a teenager. Yeah. So it's, he must. Uh, and it's really, if, and it's one I'd encourage people to play to to get a feel for Ross courses because if you know that area, it is extremely flat. Uh, you're near the ocean; it's very, very flat the entire golf course. And then you have all these mounted greens. And the balls just move all over the place on those greens. I mean, you, you get so much break, more break than even. I mean, you look and say, well, I'll do this or that. And always seems to do two or three times as much. So other, other than, uh, you know, making sure that courses or being a resource for courses that want to maintain the integrity of their design, what other types of programs does the society offer members? It's a social organization also. It is a social organization. One of the important things we've done and we've done since the beginning is host a series of events at Ross Courses in the United States and Canada for our members in three, four or five day events to give our members a chance to play different Ross Courses, you know, as I said, in different parts of the country and in Canada and just to experience them and learn more about Ross and the process. The other thing benefit from doing that besides helping to educate our members is we use that as a primary fundraising vehicle for the Donald Ross Society Foundation, which makes grants to courses and efforts that we think are consistent with the mission of the society. So for example, we gave some money to Carlson to help him produce that video. Oh, okay. Do you help courses to pay for architects that are remain true to the 
Ross design tradition? Or Yeah, we help them pay for work. We don't contribute to any private courses. We, we contribute to public courses uh, to help them, um, as I say, restore Ross's work or you know, recover Ross as best as possible. For example, there's a 36-hole course in uh, Boardman, Ohio called Mill Creek. They've had a multi-year effort to really embrace Ross and put as much of his work back into the course. We've contributed to them. We've contributed to a public course in upstate Michigan that they had Ross's designs for the course, but after they bought the land, this was back 80, 90 years ago, they'd run out of money and they're now in the process of trying to finish, put all of Ross's design back in the course. In some cases, features that were never built there. They were designed, but just never built in. How many of the actual blueprints do you think you have? What, what percentage? Everything we get, first of all, we give to the Tufts archives. And they have drawings, I think, for something like 150 or 160 courses. Not necessarily the entire course, but at least some designs for it. A number, quite a few courses, they have all the designs, some of them, and we're finding more and more. And uh, as soon as we get them, we get to the cusp because it's become a resource for the architects. They can go down and, and study what Ross has done and help them you know, in their work. Now, did the Ross company, if you want to call it a company, the organization end with his passing? Did he have a legacy or? Some of the people who worked for him, like J.B. McGovern, Alice Maples, they continued to do design work after he died. Under their own brands. Under their own brand. Yeah. yeah. So he was a great architect and a great business person, but maybe not so good at building his organization so that someone would continue the operation, I guess, huh? I guess nobody's you know, perfect. I, you know, I don't know if that's true. I've read where, you know, by the 1940s, you know, he was getting, he was older. And he frankly wanted to slow down. Yeah. But... He had so many people that were working because of him that he kept going. How old was he when he passed? 76. He worked right up to his death. Oh, well, he was a fairly young man, though, by today's standards, certainly. I wonder if the war took some wind out of the sails in terms of golf course architecture anyway at that point. If he passed in 48, you know, he probably, the years leading up to his death probably were not active anyway. They were not, nor was there a lot of activity during the Depression. Although he did build a number of public courses at the time that were effectively WPA projects. Okay. But so yes, what, what did, during World War II, yeah, there was not a lot of new golf course construction. Yeah. Did he go on the speaking tour at all? Did he give lectures and attend events, golf-related events? As far as I know, yes. He was a speaker. He was frequently interviewed. I don't think he had a speaking circuit or anything like that. I think it was just something that happened from time to time. Are any of those recorded? Not that I know. Okay. So what does the society do to promote awareness and grow its membership? I kind of found you guys by accident. And I do wonder, you know, what kind of... Well, one of the things we do, as I mentioned, we have these events, which are very important to the overall work, our overall work. In the course of doing our work, we meet other members at these courses, talk to them about the Roth Society, we have certainly tried very hard over the last 30 years to make ourselves relevant to Donald Ross courses by virtue of the work we've done to help promote restoration and assist courses that want to pursue a restoration. 
third activity that has become very significant over recent years is we started something called a historian network, where we've been trying to find out which Ross courses have an historian or someone like an historian. We don't, there's a number of courses, some of the more prominent ones that do have someone with a formal position of historian, but we've found in the case of a lot of clubs, there's an, a longtime member or employee who has taken an interest in that club's history and accumulated some archival information. And we now have a network of almost 300 historians that functions as an exchange for ideas and information. Uh, we regularly put out pieces to the historians that we think will be of interest to them. And that's become a much bigger activity in the last couple of years and growing. Okay. That's your historian society, you call it? Uh, historian network. Oh, network. Okay. Mm -hmm. So can anyone join the society? Is, is it a closed membership or do you have no. to be recommended? No, anyone can join. It's, okay. Uh, and we, I will tell you that probably 85% of our members belong to a Ross course or play regularly a Ross course, but we have quite a few who are not, you know, they're members, some other course, some other okay. or not a member of a course at all. How does someone go about joining the society? Uh, you can go to our website and sign up there. It's $150 to join and it's $100 a year thereafter. It's, okay. We're not elitist. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's focus for a few minutes on your personal story. So, I mean, when did you take up golf? How, how did that happen? And how often do you play? Uh, do you play courses other than Donald Ross courses? Or is that considered verboten? I enjoy a lot of different architects. I'm a member of a golf course in Los Angeles, which was designed, well, two courses designed by George Thomas. And I'm a huge fan of his work as well. I did not start playing golf until my late 30s. I've never been anything better than an average golfer, but um, you know I enjoy it very much. And as I've gotten older, find myself playing more and more. Do you walk, carry, ride? I do. Depends on the course. Depends on the course. Uh, the course I belong to in, in Los Angeles, I always walk. You know, here in North Carolina in August, I don't really feel like walking a golf course. <laughs> okay. Okay. So of all the courses you've played, well, first of all, before I go there, what prompted you to take up golf? Do you have a relative or a friend? Or Well, at the time, I'd been working in New York, and I was transferred to Los Angeles. I'd actually spent most of my life in California. And when I was out there, I was getting you know, clients that I was doing business with asking me to play golf. And I said, well, I don't play golf. We've got to play golf. So I just started doing it. And and once I started, started playing more and more to try to improve my meager skills. How often do you play now these days? I probably will get in 100 to 150 rounds a year. Wow, that's pretty healthy. Mm -hmm. What is it about Donald Ross and his body of work that's inspired you to devote so much time to the organization and the cause? Well, as I said, I played that first Ross course. It was so different from what I was used to and so much fun. And if I could just back up a little bit, I think this is one of the characteristics of George Thomas's work, who was a contemporary of Ross. They knew each other. Where Los Angeles Country Club played it how many thousands of times, and I never get tired of it. And there are a lot of other courses I've played four or five times. And, you know, other than my own inadequacy as a golfer, there's not much more to learn. He said, with everything that he did, the way he would route a course, the way you'd have so much going on on his greens, you know, depending upon and he had multiple tees, and depending upon the way the course was laid out on a given day or the way winds were blowing and so forth, 
you know, you make the course interesting for the player every day. There was always a new challenge, something you had to be mindful of. Do you have any modern-day architects that you admire or think are worthy of maybe becoming the future Donald Rosses? Case in Los Angeles country, Gil Hansen's redesign has worked on both of the courses there, and I think he's just done a brilliant job. Yeah. So he would certainly be a leading candidate. Tom Doak, and I admire his work, just to name a couple. Okay. So what have I not asked you, Brad? What else do listeners need to know about you or the society that we haven't covered in this conversation? Well, I think, you know, I would encourage anyone who is listening to check out our website. There's a lot of information about what we do, the kind of activities that are going on, the information that we're trying to provide to people, not only our members, but our historian network. And if you do get a chance to please check out the website and see what's available there. Okay. And the address for that website is? www.rosssociety.org. Okay. And by the way, I'll include that and links to other things we've talked about on the show notes section of the Golfia website. So, Brad, thanks for your time. This has been really interesting. I think your organization is important. I think for people who are, you know, who hold the game to be something more than, you know, a way to spend four or five hours on a weekend, you're doing great work. And I congratulate you and I wish you continued success. And thank you for your time today. I went through and added up. The U.S. Open has been played 26 times on a Ross course, the PGA Championship 17 times on a Ross course, the U.S. Women's Open 17 times, the Senior Open 11 times, the U.S. Amateur Championship 21 times, the Women's Amateur Championship 29 times, and the Ryder Cup 6 times. So Ross has aged very well. Wow, I should say. So here's a question for you. Two questions. Has Donald Ross ever been an answer to a question on Jeopardy or a New York Times crossword puzzle? I have no idea. Okay. Maybe we should work on that. So I will Thank tell you, I sent you that letter. We're trying to get a stamp. Oh, a yeah. Commemorative stamp created. And I'm part, I've been part of that effort. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. That certainly would be one way to, to spread the word about Donald Ross. So that's a great idea. So thanks again. I appreciate your time, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy what you've talked about. Thank you, Gordon. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 